Hey, what's up, guys? This is Norb. And this is Mike. And we are the Watchmen. The men who watch. Because if it's on a screen, we're watching it and talking about it and sharing it with you guys. Today is going to be a really fun show. We are going to talk about our five favorite comedies from the decade of the 80s. Oh, yeah. This was uh, so many good, funny memories and great movies here. As always, hard to pick, but you got to get it down to five, and that's what today's show is all about. So before we get into it, though, I just want to thank you guys for those of you watching on YouTube and those listening on our podcast. Thank you very much. We hope you'll continue to listen and watch and support the show. Let's do this thing, Mike. 80s, that's kind of our, our childhood, our adolescence, and these movies just sort of represent that whole age. It's like the coming, coming of... The coming out age for us in terms of, you know, going from kids to becoming more mature. And these movies all, I think, had some part of that process of being a kid and growing up. And these movies were such a big part of that, I'm sure. Yeah, and some of them I saw in the theater and some of them I saw at my friend's house on Showtime. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, a lot of these were video rentals that I didn't see in, in the, the theater, but watched many, 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 many times on Illegally copied VHS tapes. So, uh. <laughs> in the 80s, uh, for those of you that are a little a bit younger, the first time you could really watch big time feature movies at home was when Showtime and HBO, which stands for Home Box Office, came yeah. out. And it was this little box you had to rent from either Showtime or HBO that they'd, they'd ship it to you and you'd put it on top of your TV and your cable would run through it and it allowed you to watch feature films, commercial-free. And if if you didn't have the box, you'd just get a channel that was all garbly gook, but the sound was always fine. So you could hmm. sometimes still <laughs> yeah. make things out. I'd, we never had it in my house, so once in a while I'd flip to that channel and just try to make out what movie I thought was playing. But my uh, friend had Showtime, so I'd go to his house all, all a lot. Yeah, I, I have to tell you, uh, this is uh, in, in the early days of my, my college house, before you moved in, we had one of the early cable boxes that had an actual rotary dial, and it was one of the last of its kinds. Literally, like, you turned it, and we didn't have a lot of page channels, but if you put it right between two channels, you could pick <laughs> up pay channels. I could pick, pick up HBO if you went right between, like, 13 and 14 and put it right in between. It was awesome. It was the greatest thing. And then they made us upgrade our boxes and took it back. We were so disappointed because then we had to oh. pay for it. It was, it was so great, though. I remember, I think the movie channel or... Cinemax or something was the hardest one. It's like really I had to just dial it in perfectly between the two. But anyway, that was that was late '80s when that happened. But we're talking or, or early yeah. '90s. But we're talking '80s here. Uh, I can't wait to hear what's on your list. I'm sure we might have a movie. I, I'm betting if I were a betting man that there's going to be at least one movie on here that we share. I think maybe so too. two, maybe three. We'll see. But yeah, I, I'm I excited think, to hear what's on your list. I think we're going to share them. The Brill Mystery will be will they be our, the similar number two, number one. Yeah, right. In right. Rank. So let's go. So starting uh, with my number five. Uh, and just to give a, a place of things, the way I did my research is I Googled a bunch of top lists of comedies from the 80s, and I even went to just lists of comedies from the 80s. And what was shocking and shocking, and when I say shocking, I mean shocking, is that this comedy was not on any of those what? lists. It wasn't really? even listed under comedies from the 80s. And I, I was blown away. I was blown away. Hmm. So, my number five, and I don't even know if you've actually seen this, 
but I'm going to kind of have fun and see if you can figure it out as I articulate the story. So it's a story about uh, Chuck is a guy who works alone at night in the city morgue. And he likes the peace and quiet. And his boss tells him he's going to get a new partner. And the first night his new partner shows up, he's looking at the door, the entrance to the morgue, and there's the glass pane of the door that's kind of that old foggy glass. And you hear this voice, and the voice is singing a song, and it's going, and the shadow is coming closer and closer, and then the door flies open, and it's Michael Keaton, and he says, hey. So if you haven't figured it out, the movie is called Night Shift. Yeah, oh, yeah. Night Shift. Great film. I can't believe it's not any of those lists. It wasn't really? on any of them. And wow. that's a travesty. Travesty. <laughs> well, it's on this list, at least. So Night Shift is a 1982 American comedy film directed by Ron Howard, who was uh, Richie Cunningham from the old show Happy Days. And I mean, Ron Howard is now pretty well known as a famous Hollywood director. The story is concerning a timid night shift employee whose life is turned upside down by a new co-worker who fancies himself a free-spirited entrepreneur. It stars Howard's Happy Days co-star Henry Winkler, who we all know as Fonzie. The Fonzie, the Fonz. Al- along with Michael Keaton in his first starring role. This is the movie that made Michael Keaton a movie star. I don't think many people know that. Shelley Long co-stars along with Richard Belzer and Clint Howard, and there are brief scenes with a very young Kevin Costner as Mm -hmm. frat boy number one, Shannon (laughs) Doherty as a bluebell scout, Vincent Scavelli as a man who delivers a sandwich, and Charles Fleischer as one of the jail prisoners. The title song, Night Shift, was performed by Quarter Flash, which was a big band in the 80s from Portland, Oregon. But I saw this on Showtime, because it's rated R, so I shot it on Showtime at my friend's house, and... I laughed so hard. It was so funny. It was also surprising to see Fonzie playing such a timid, meek type (laughs) of character. Uh But Michael Keaton was this crazy guy. He was was the yin to, to, to Chuck's yang in the movie. And one of the funniest little things about Michael Keaton's character is that he would carry around with him a microcassette recorder. And he would say, I always got these ideas, and I and when these ideas come into my head, I gotta talk into the tape. So he would say, at one point he says, We're gonna make Chuck a man. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, that's right. To him, Chuck is boring. And yeah. of course, this lends itself to a, a really important scene where where because Chuck can't can't stand Bill. He can't stand him. He's just he's total opposite of what he wants, peace and quiet. He just wants to be left alone. And of course, Bill is all about, you know, let's be friends, let's make this cool. And so at one point, he gets under Chuck's nerves so much, Chuck screams at him and grabs his microcassette recording memory. He says, this is Chuck telling Bill to shut up. Oh, yeah. Even later, does he keep playing it over? He hears, oh, and then he hears the tape going, this is Chuck telling Bill to shut up. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> shut up. Oh, this yeah, is Chuck telling Bill to shut up. Up, and he realized that Bill is lying in one of the morgue drawers, playing oh, this right. over and over. And he pulls the drawer out to see him just lying there with the tape recorder, just playing it over and over. I forgot about that. 
<laughs> well, so that show, that's great. It's not on my list, but the other great part in that, I mean, Michael Keaton is awesome in that. But you remember he gives the... So they, they turn this place into basically... Uh, they, they run like a prostitution Love uh, brokers! <laughs> but he, 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 he does this... Um, Michael Keaton does this sort of rah-rah speech with a with a chalkboard. I know. I wasn't going to talk about it because it's oh. a little R-rated, but I, I it is know, funny as heck. He, he uses the he breaks down the word prostitution into a di- if in different components into different parts of Pros, the which the, yeah, which uh, yeah. so explanatory. You're you just going to have to see the movie. Keep away, but doesn't really apply. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so hilarious. That was such a memorable moment of that, that movie. That was great. I, I could just watch that scene over and over again. That was yep. good. God, you got me cried over here. That, I forgot about the. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is why Night Shift is a great comedy. And if you haven't <sighs> seen it. It's a must-watch. That's, that's that is a good one. I, I have to say, but I have to preface before we go into this. Uh, my lifelong friend, who I've known since kindergarten, my buddy Rob Portman. He's uh, we've been friends, like I said, since I remember any memories of life. Uh, he's been there, and all of these movies, I think we watched together at some point, whether it was on video or in a movie theater, but. Uh, it's like it's synonymous with my friendship because we went through that, those adolescent days of growing up, then you know going through middle school, then eventually high school, and even living together for the early part of college. And so all of these movies, you know, I have to kind of dedicate to my buddy Rob because we went and lived these movies, and all those samples from these shows are something that's like ingrained in our friendship. So I know Rob's probably listening to this. Uh, Rob, this this show is definitely for you because any one of these shows I think of. There's a memory of you attached to it. So, and just one uh, other little tidbit of information: the nah, nah, that's actually Jumping Jack Flash by the Rolling Stones. Yes, so, right. Made that song famous <laughs> as well. By the way, he's just singing the nah, 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 nah. I mean, and that's that in history is the first time you hear Michael Keaton, and he went on to be that Batman and in just and hundreds of so movies. many other great roles. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, to, to start at the bottom, of my uh, my five. Um, number five is The Naked Gun. Uh, it's directed by David Zucker, starring Leslie Nielsen. Uh, he plays an incompetent uh, police detective, Frank Drebin, and he has to foil an attempt of an assassination of Queen Elizabeth II. It also co-stars Priscilla Presley as his love interest and uh, O.J. Simpson back before... He was behind bars, uh, and he was pretty darn funny in that show, playing a character, Nordberg, which is awfully close to my name, Norbert. Yeah, Nordberg. Nordberg. <laughs> uh, the opening scene with that, it was hilarious. Um, this was, Leslie Nielsen is a great, was a great comedy actor because he had such a way of doing everything just deadpan serious, which made it so funny. Everything he did in the show was delivered with such, um, so, so seriously. And that's why everything was so funny. It was written with Leslie Nielsen delivering these lines. Uh, so many moments that, um, you know, just this is early college laughs for me um, in this show. And just, nice beaver. Thanks, I just got it stuffed. I mean, it's just, <laughs> this is a great show. Watched it, on, had it on tape, watched it so many times. And uh, I couldn't, couldn't start my list without at least uh, mentioning uh, the, the Naked Gun, which uh, has been watched uh, many, many, many times in my in my uh, in my memory of '80s comedies. You've seen this one, right, Mike? I've never seen it. No, I'm just kidding. Of course, I've seen it. <laughs> I don't know. Everybody's seen this. Uh, the Naked Gun is my honorable mention 
on my mm. list. And okay. the, I made it an honorable mention because it's really a, a, a tribute to the Zaz brothers, Zucker, Abram Zucker, yeah. who created Airplane, Airplane 2, The Naked Gun, The Naked Gun 2, The Naked Gun 33 and a third. Uh, they, those guys, they had this. The, the, how would you describe their comedy? A lot of it was just physical comedy, slapsticky gags, uh, a lot of just funny voice voice gags, you know, like in airplane, you know, uh, there's a call for you on the red phone. And so he picks up the blue phone and you hear, no, the red phone. So he hangs up the blue phone, picks up the red phone. Do you remember Top Secret? Top, Top Secret. Secret, yeah. Yep, yep. So again, Val all the Kilmer. comedies were of a very particular style that the Zazz brothers yeah. were known for doing. And I guess The Naked Gun is one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. 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 the play on words. The plays yeah. on words. Uh, yeah, all those kind of could lump together in sort of the same almost kind of genre of its own. But yeah, yeah, surely you can't be serious. I am serious. Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> that stuff is awesome. And Give me the Clarence, Nielsen Clarence, what's your vector, Victor? <laughs> yep, that stuff is so good. But yeah, all those sort of play off of each other and it's, it's, it's a great parody. They're all parodies of something that had been done before. Well, and what's sad movie, is they don't you know. make comedies like that anymore. Well, they were so not PC, you know, yeah. they, they wouldn't, some shows do do that. There are some shows that got to get edgy, but for the most part, they stay away from some of the stuff that really crossed the line on some of those things. They're very sexual. There are a lot of yeah. sexual, yeah. you know, things, a lot of racial things in there, stereotypes. Yeah, that's They won't sure. do that now, you know. It's just too taboo to, like, uh, cross that line on, on some of these, uh, the, the comedies today. So, yeah, if you want some good, raw, un-PC material to watch anything from, from Zabram, uh, Abrams, Zucker, Abrams, Zucker, because that stuff is raw and so good. So anyway, Naked Gun starts my list off. So yep. number four, what, what do you got? So my number four is, uh, give you a little hint, it's a Casio. <laughs> oh, yes. My number four is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, <laughs> uh, John Hughes movie. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is a 1987 American road buddy comedy film written, produced, and directed by John Hughes. The film stars Steve Martin as Neil Page, a high-strung marketing executive, and John Candy as Del Griffith, a good-hearted but annoying shower curtain ring salesman. Who sells shower curtain rings? I don't know. They share a three-day odyssey of misadventures trying to get Neil home to Chicago in time for Thanksgiving with his family. Obviously, John Hughes is such a big part of comedy in the 80s. I know we're going to have... A f- one or two John Hughes films yep. in our list for sure. But Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, I'm a huge Steve Martin fan. Always loved Steve Martin. And I loved him in this movie, and I've got to have S- Steve Martin in a movie on my top five list. It is a must. And he and John Candy had the perfect chemistry. Uh, I know you like this movie as well. We've talked about it at length, and uh, even Kevin Bacon has a surprise, uncredited cameo <laughs> yeah. at the very beginning. Yeah, at the beginning, we're chasing down a cab, get a yeah. cab to get to the airport. But it 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 it, it poked humor at at just the, uh, what it means to to have to to hang out and travel with someone who makes you uncomfortable, and you really wish you could get rid of them, but you're trying to be nice at the same time because there's a side of you that you want to be nice. You don't want to hurt their feelings and this movie is a lot about that <laughs> where's your other hand between two pillows those aren't pillows, <laughs> those aren't pillows? <laughs> oh that's a that's such a good show um 
Yeah, good memories on that one. It was on my, it's not on my top five, but it would definitely would be on my top ten. Um, it floated in and out on five as I was kind of making my list. Like, yeah. well, like, no, this one probably takes, eh, but that's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, it had a lot of heart to it. That's the other side. There was actually a very emotional it part of very show touching. at the end when it's like yeah. you get past uh, Dell's annoying personality and you find out the real story behind yeah. why he's on the road all the time and uh, I mean, I think we can be spoiler. You know, we can spoil his past. This movie's been out here for you know, thirty years or something. But you know, when you find out his wife's been dead for ten years or however long it's been, it's like, oh my gosh! You feel like now you just feel like a heel because Steve Martin's been treating this guy like crap the entire time, and and then you find out this guy's you know been been carrying the picture of his dead wife everywhere he goes, and he's just a sad guy. And so in the end, he brings him home for Thanksgiving. And it's such a such a, a warm story. But that's, that was the beauty of John Hughes, is that he had such a, way, a, a natural way with with comedy, but gusting comedy, but there was always heart to those stories. There was yeah. always a, a nice thematic, yeah. you know, life tale to be told underneath all that. So that's what made, made John Hughes so good and why I'm sure he's on many more films on this list to come. But yeah, I, I love that show as well. So, And this movie is rated R, but it's actually only rated R it's for language. language. It's, there's a yeah. big scene where Steve Martin gets <laughs> upset at, at a rental car counter and starts Drops and he says, a lot of- first of all, you can wipe that <laughs> smile off your face. And he goes into a tirade of F-bombs. And F-bombs, A tirade yeah. of F-bombs. And it's very funny. It's hilarious. But that's yeah. what got it the R rating. Yep. All right. Well, so moving on to my number four uh, would be a John Landis film. If you guys remember the director of John Landis, Trading Places. This is the story about a snobbish investor played by Dan Aykroyd and a wily street con artist played by Eddie Murphy who find their positions reversed as part of a bet by two callous millionaires. Also stars Jamie Lee Curtis as the love interest in the show. Uh, this, again, is one of those great shows that I think it was to my to credit to my buddy Rob, who I think is the one who brought this movie to my attention because I did not have, you know, I didn't have the, the pay channels at my house. So I had to find out all the good stuff from Rob. He was the one who brought all the R-rated comedies <laughs> over to me, and we'd watch them on rental movie nights and stuff like that. Um, so this show is great. Um, I think this is around the time when Eddie Murphy was just starting to, career was starting to take off. And the early days of Eddie Murphy, whether you go with Saturday Night Live, and so was Dan, uh, Dan Aykroyd, that transition from when he left from Saturday Night Live into the movie side of things uh, was awesome. And this kind of represents sort of that pinnacle, I think, of the two guys who you know, had left Saturday Night Live and now combining on a, on a fantastic uh, movie with John Landis, who was one of the best comedy directors also during the 80s. Uh, this, this movie is just fantastic. Uh, it was a, just a, a cool story of, you know, rich guy, dude on the street, they get switched, and so just the whole fish out of water of a rich guy stuck in the in the slums and a poor guy suddenly thrown into the penthouse. That whole thing was just a, a brilliant, you know, brilliant story, a brilliant premise, and uh, so much fun. And then with Jamie Lee Curtis looking really good in there, by the way, I think that was one of the, the next movies after she did Halloween, and uh, just one if you haven't seen it. I'd be surprised, but you got to watch it again because there's some good zingers, good laughs in that movie. So one of my favorites, Trading Places at number four. 
I saw Trading Places back in the 80s, and you know what? It didn't resonate with me quite the same. I, I know I laughed, but sadly, I can't remember much about that movie just because I haven't seen it since. Mm. So it's just not you, as at the top of my brain. But I did see it, and I, I, rem- I don't remember not liking it. I just can't remember the details. I need uh, you to act out one of them for me. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, trying to think of what's a good... Uh... I don't know if I have anything off the top of my head. This is not one of those movies that had the sampling type of repetibility that I've had from other movies that are on this list. I'm trying to think if there's something good on there. That's okay. I can't think of one. It's also got the the bad guy who um, I forgot the actor's name, but he always plays the, the bad guy in uh, in all those movies. He was the he was the uh, police chief um, in Die Hard. What's that actor? Oh um, yeah, you know he about. was in Breakfast he's always Club. The, he's always the prick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, the principal in Breakfast Club. He was yeah. he was uh, a character in this show. He's like the 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 the, the strength, the, the the bodyguard guy for the for the for evil millionaires, and and uh, he had a role in this thing too. But anyway, sorry, I don't have any quotes for you on this one. It's okay. Mine's blanking. This it's is a right. great show. So on to my number three. And this is a movie I didn't see in the 80s. It was a very, very under-the-radar film. Uh, uh, but I have Rob to thank for telling me this is one you got to see. And that is a, a very unknown movie called Three O'Clock High. Oh, yeah. Three O'Clock High <laughs> is yep. a 1987 American high school black comedy from Universal Pictures that stars Casey Semesco as a meek high school student who is coerced into fighting a much larger and intimidating transfer student with a prior bad reputation. That transfer student's name is Buddy Ravel, played by Richard Tyson. Anne Ryan, Jeffrey Tambor, Philip Baker Hall, and John P. Ryan co-star as fellow high school students and staff. The, the premise of the story is the journalism teacher assigns Jerry the job of doing a welcome article about Buddy, since Buddy's the new kid and Jerry works at the paper. So Jerry runs into Buddy in the bathroom and tries to say hi and talk to him, but it doesn't go well. But what he doesn't know about Buddy is Buddy has this thing about being touched. And Jerry touches him on the shoulder and says, you know, let's just forget the article. And so Buddy goes bananas and slams him against the wall and says at three o'clock they will have a fight in the school parking lot and so the movie is jerry spending the rest of that school day trying all kinds of ways to get out of the fight all to failure what's great about this movie is the fight happens and it's a good fight it's got the payoff sometimes movies go down that road where you think you're going down to a big finale and it kind of fizzles and uh three o'clock high paid off in spades in the end and the whole humor was just constantly i mean and i think a lot of it really resonated for me growing up in the 80s because in the 80s there were a lot of bullies uh today it's a lot better out there there's a lot of anti-bullying and it's 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 helped i think a lot of kids these days save them from getting picked on but in the 80s there was a different mindset. The mindset was, hey, man, you know, defend yourself. If people pick on you, you know, you you fight back. You know, you got to learn to be tough. And, well, there mm-hmm. were kids that scared the crap out of me in the 80s, and all I did oh, was yeah. try to avoid them. And so in this movie, Jerry is trying to avoid Buddy. He's scared, scared beyond all means. And even he goes to a class, and the class has a science film about the praying mantis 
And it's it's like Jerry's the weak, you know, the weak bug that the praying mattress is mantis is going to attack and kill. And it, it's that like you're sitting there watching that, thinking that's me. I'm dead, and I can identify with that. It had one more memorable scene where Jerry tries to talk a football player into telling Buddy to leave him alone, and he pays him a hundred dollars. And so the football player approaches Buddy in the library and says, you need to leave Jerry alone, and he puts his hand on Buddy's shoulder. And Buddy gets up and just pummels the football player with his fist, and he falls against a stack of bookcases in the library that then knocks over another stack of bookcases, another stack, and it's a domino effect. All these bookcases go, 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 all around the library, and it's real. There's no visual effects. It was It was something else to see. It was just, I rewound it and watched it, I think, a few more times just because I was so impressed with how they achieved that practical effect in the movie. So I I have a feeling you haven't seen this movie. I saw it, but this isn't one of those movies I saw multiple times. There's so many movies I'd seen a bunch of times. I think I just saw it the one time, but my memory of this is very foggy. And it certainly Mm -hmm. is not on my top five or top ten list, but I know it's, uh, yeah, I I don't have, this is a foggy memory on this one, I, and I know my buddy Rob loves this show, and, uh, and our, our pal Kurt as well, you know, would, would talk about this one of the most underrated shows, but yeah, this one that just never really was on my rewatch list. I saw it a long time ago, and I kind of moved on from it, but I know it's one I think my friends hold in much higher regard than my memory of it is. You know, you should but. show this one to your girls. I think that's one to show to the girls. I Because the great thing about it is it really does capture high school. They do a good job. It feels real. Even I need to whole, watch this again. Yeah, The whole way the movie starts out is the camera's kind of floating past different kids walking up to school, and you hear bits and pieces of the conversation. And it just it's, it has a very realistic, authentic feel to it. And and I could definitely identify with Jerry's fear of getting beat up at the end well, of the day. Well, I think I think I think we've all my my daughters I think for the most part have been spared by that threat of feeling like someone's going to beat you up, you know. But there there's always that person that you you know that you know of or you hear about, you know, that's you know picking on other people and stuff like that. So they've seen that. Obviously, it's different this, in this day and age, but it still exists. But for me. Yeah, I, I had my share of being bullied, that's for sure. Being one of the only Asian guys in a mostly white school uh, school district at the time, back in the 80s, I took some flack, you know, often some misguided, wrongly, wrong racial slurred flack going my way. <laughs> I've been called the N-word, I was called other ethnic, you know, races. I'm like in my head going, you're like, you don't even know what race I'm at. Well, I'm actually <laughs> am. <laughs> you're calling me something else. They just, all they know is that you're not white, so I'm going to call you something that I, that I can remember. But yeah, it's just you're it, different. It was not fun. I remember a kid taking my lunch money, and uh, there, I remember there was a guy, <laughs> speaking of Rob, I mentioned in the beginning of the show, there was a time when there was a guy named Tim Bennett, and he always drew sharks on my on my notebooks and stuff. But there was one time I think he was picking on me, and Rob tried to sort of defend me, and he threw some blades of grass at him or something, and he acted like, "Oh my God!" He uh, he said uh, he said something like he was going to get him back for that. And Rob lived in fear of Tim Bennett for a long time, so that was one of those names that was just watch out for Tim Bennett. Tim Bennett's coming, and uh, I wonder what Tim Bennett's doing these days. I should Facebook him and find out what he's up to. But mm-hmm. yeah, for a long time, he was like the, the name of fear back in elementary school. But anyway, 
Yeah, need to need to go check that one out. That's uh, that's a, a needs a re, need a refresher course on that one. All right, so go to my number three movie. Uh, another one of my famous favorite favorites I had to put on this list. It's another John Landis film, and this one is Coming to America. Coming to America is about an extremely pampered African prince played by Eddie Murphy, who travels to Queens, New York, with his sidekick pal Arsenio Hall, and goes undercover to find a wife that he can respect for her intelligence and her will. Also co-stars James Earl Jones, who plays the king of, I forgot the name of the country that they're from, the African nation that he's from, but uh, James Earl Jones plays the king. And uh, this was a great film. Uh, I think what it stands out, if uh, for those of you who've seen it and remember what was special about it, was how Eddie Murphy played a multitude, actually him and Arsenio Hall played a multitude of characters in this show. I want to say there was like five different characters that he plays. So Eddie Murphy played himself, he played the the uh, uh, the old old guy in the in the barber shop, he played uh, the sexual chocolate, sexual chocolate, the singer, <laughs> uh, that guy, uh, he played that singer. Um, there was some more, too. And Arsenio Hall also played at least three or four characters in that show. But that was what was so fun, just seeing all these different you know, makeup effects to transform these guys in different roles. But it was just so full of funny, funny, funny scenes um, that are just countless throughout the story. And again, it had a good, had good heart to <clears> it. Um, one thing that really makes this show special to me is that this is years later in the last few years, and... Had the opportunity to meet the writer of this movie. Remember that, Mike? I do. Met uh, David Sheffield because of a contact of someone who lives up here, used to be in the business, uh, and worked at Paramount. They were involved on, in the production business together. He happened to be in town. I got to sit down with the guy who wrote Coming to America. And it was so fun to basically just throw out lines and quotes and bring up scenes and have the guy who wrote it talk about, oh, yeah, that was uh, that was fun to do I that I think scene. we made his day. It, it was great, yeah. You remember that? It was yeah, such a, a yeah. you know, such a rare, never thought this would ever happen. And to actually be sitting down with one of my most favorite comedies of the 80s and the writer was right there. It was almost, yeah, that was cool. it, was, it was surreal. But a, a very special moment to be able to sit with the person who actually wrote that script. So, great movie, great memories during and after, years later, with that experience. I definitely loved Coming to America. It's not on my my top five list, but a good movie. I think, when I think about that movie, one of the best jokes was really one of the more subtle ones. But there's a whole thing with this guy who owns a restaurant named McDowell's. And and it looks like McDonald's. McDonald's. It's got the same colors. They have similar golden arches and... And because Eddie Murphy's character ends up working there, and the owner of <laughs> McDowell's is talking about, you know, they got the Big Mac, we got the Big Mick. And everything is just clearly a ripoff. But there's a very subtle moment where he goes into the, the guy's office and he's reading a McDonald's crew training manual. And he quickly folds it up and puts it away, <laughs> basically hiding that he's stealing from the competition. But it was a subtle little joke, but I remember I really liked that one. Well, there's another one, too. And I know that I never I never had the pleasure of working in a McDonald's. I know I did. you did. And I know you did. So I know you had to had a good tickle of fun memories when... God, what was the name of the actor? He was also a Saturday Night Live guy, I think, too. He, he was the guy who was playing, he was doing the, um, remember he talks about... I know you're talking about. Right now I'm, I'm, uh, 
Gosh, I, I wish I would have the quote in front of me. I can do it about, for you. He do says, it, do it. He says, I'm doing burgers. He says, but pretty soon, if I work really hard, they're going to move me up to fries. And then he says, and after that, I might actually be taking orders. And he makes or, it like it's yeah. such a oh, big Oh, yeah, but then deal. he goes, and then... They promote me to assistant manager. That's right. And that's that's, that's right. when the big bucks start rolling that's in. That's when the big bucks start rolling in. <laughs> and that's when Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall look at each other like, oh, God, is, are yeah. you kidding me? That was great. And I thought it, you, you because you worked that fun oh, it's time. true. I, I, my first job in high school was working at McDonald's, and I made $3.35 an hour, which was a minimum wage at the time. And I will never forget, after I'd worked there six months, my boss had a, had a talk with me, and she reviewed my performance, and she said, you're doing a really good job, so we're going to give you a dime an hour raise. <laughs> so instead of three thirty-five, you're going to get three forty-five an hour. And I remember it was like she'd handed me the golden keys. <laughs> and and I believed it. I, I went home and thought, I'm making a dime more an hour. That means after eight-hour shift... I'm going to get 80 cents more a day. That's a gallon of gas. Yep, that's true. Oh, <laughs> so. oh man. Per- perspective, folks. Perspective. Perspective. 80s perspective. <laughs> uh, okay, so All right. where are we at? Number two. Number two. <clears throat> I will say my number two, number one. It was a difficult decision, but I, I feel very strongly about the choice I made. So my number two... Involves a very familiar catchphrase called, Who You Gonna Call? And that's the Ghostbusters. Mm. Ghostbusters is a 1984 American supernatural comedy film directed by Yvonne Reitman and written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. Stars Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Ramis as, respectively, Peter Venkman, Ray Stance, and Egon Spendler, a trio of eccentric parapsychologists who start a ghost-catching business in New York City. The film also stars Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis and features Annie Potts, William Atherton, and Ernie Hudson in supporting roles. I would like to think most people watching have seen Ghostbusters. And when I went to that movie, it was one of those experiences where I came out of the theater. I was laughing so hard. I was also scared a little bit. Some of the ghosts were a little creepy. The science uh, fiction side of the story with the special effects were terrific. I thought the coolest thing ever was when the Ghostbusters finally got the big time, they did all these mock magazine covers of them using famous magazines like Time and Omni. And I remember they would fly, they had a montage where they'd fly the covers across the screen and talk about and show them on the cover. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I thought they, they got USA Today to like make a, a mock newspaper front page of the Ghostbusters. And to me, that just made it real. It's like they tied in the, the movie side of the world with the real world by having these real magazine covers designed, obviously with approval of the magazine people who were making them. But so many great lines. Where do these stairs go? They go up. They go up. <laughs> yep. I, I could go on and on. And not to mention a great soundtrack. I mean, who are you going to call? A legend in, in 80s songs. And... Um, uh, I bought the Ghostbusters soundtrack and listened to the whole thing over and over. And uh, so, hands down, my number two, I-, I could go on and on about Ghostbusters. But, Norb, I am curious, is Ghostbusters in your list? You know what's funny is it's not. Oh, my gosh. But it's, it, it's, it's funny because I think when I think of Ghostbusters, I don't think of it 
as a comedy. You I know guess who's it screaming is a at you right now. Brandon Brazier is screaming at yeah. you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, it is, and that's one of my top movies. And yet, when I was thinking about comedies, I don't know. I guess I put that almost in. I guess it is a comedy, but yet I, I was thinking when I would think about that movie, I put it in something else of a category. I don't know how you do that. I, don't I, I, don't, I do not. It's a know ghost how you movie. It's a ghost movie. <laughs> but it started three. I, it started. I know you're right. You're guys right. from Saturday Night Live. Yeah, that's I, true. I, I, I think I really do think that I was putting Ghostbusters in a different, uh, much like uh, Braveheart didn't make my action list because I'm saving it for a list that feels more appropriate where it belongs. But no, I did not put uh, Ghostbusters on my list, even though that is one of the best movies that made me laugh, for yeah. sure. He slimed so, me. Yep. I, I, I'm they, sorry. They, I, do, I just... That, that. that one, to me, is a, is a comedy all the way. I mean, some comedies have special effects. Yeah. So. Well, well, I didn't put it on my list. I had other ones that were kind of the forefront of what I have as my comedy history of the 80s that epitomizes it for me. And so for my number two, I've got the movie Vacation. And this is the John Hughes movie, the story about Clark Griswold, who decides to take his family on a cross-country journey to Wally World in the <coughs> family truckster. Stars Chevy Chase, Beverly D'Angelo, and his son, of course... Anthony Michael Hall uh, with a cameo by John Candy. Uh, this movie was, again, another one that Rob brought to my attention because I wouldn't have found this on my own. And definitely was on one of those VHS tape copies that I watched many, 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 many times. Uh, but this story, we could all relate because we've all been on cross-country journeys in the car. We had a station wagon that looked not that different from what they had in the, in the movie. And that whole, you know, just the everything from the scene where they're driving along and then the, the, the camera pans from everybody sleeping to the driver falling asleep. <laughs> that would be me. Um, fall, you know, do dozing off at the wheel. That was a good moment. Um, <clears throat> even ridiculous <clears throat> stuff. I remember laughing. Remember in the beginning when Chevy Chase is planning the route and yeah. it's on the computer and he's showing them where they're going to go and then his uh, son starts taking over the controller and he's putting like aliens in there and, and trying to attack the vehicle and Pac-Man and then the uh, the daughter comes in and shoots down the Pac-Man. It's like, this would never happen. <laughs> it's like, no way yet. It's funny. It's funny the way they put it together. So that and then just throughout, you know, oh gosh, so, so many funny things. With Aunt Edna who dies along the way. And with her dog, who he left chained to the bumper on the back. <laughs> we'll pick up the rest of the carcass. Uh, <laughs> all that stuff was, was hilarious. So this movie, just from its rewatchability factor and um, you know, early Chevy Chase Gold, vacation in my number two. Good song, too. Holiday Row. <laughs> yep. Lindsey Buckingham from um, Fleetwood Mac. Well, that gets us to the number one. So the big question is, do we have the same number one? I'd like to... So far, we've had less than I thought we would, but yeah. I'd like to think that we will land on this one. So my number one is a movie that changed my life in, in how I felt about comedy in the 80s, and it spoke to me. I went home. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I wanted to see it again. 
Ferris Bueller spoke to me. Yes. And he literally did speak to me. <laughs> so yeah. starts out with a typical movie where he's sick and doesn't feel like going to school and his parents say, well, you should stay home. And then they, they say goodbye and close the door. And then he did something I've never seen before. He turned he right to, to me yeah, and he said, yeah. they bought it. Yep. And then this great 80s synth rift kicks in by uh, called it's called uh, what's it called? Up. it's called F1 Love Missile F111 yep dun, 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 just this hard pounding synth beat and he says how can I possibly stay at home on a day like this whips open the curtains you've got a montage and then he starts just talking to you and they start having bullet points of the keys <laughs> to fake out the parents and he yep. talks about the clammy hands he says well maybe that's it he says oh no is flashing and yep. I, I think at that point I was just dumbfounded that he's talking to me I'm getting a lesson and they're having yeah. text bullet points on the screen and from that point I was in like Flynn yeah he has the, the rest scratch of the movie. Out bullet point about the uh, some some people think a, a phony fever is, a, is 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 the way to go, but you get a nervous mom that means a trip to the doctor's office, and that's worse than school. I mean that was that was yeah that's so I think what's cool about that I recently that's my number one as well. I love this movie for so many reasons. I recently watched this with my girls. I hadn't seen it in a long time, even though I know this like the back of my hand almost. Uh, we watched it less than a month ago. And they actually enjoyed it. And my, especially my youngest daughter is hard, hard to sell when it comes to showing her stuff from the 80s because she's got these high standards. She doesn't like to watch old stuff. So the fact that they enjoyed it and were laughing uh, was great. But I had forgotten how many funny little subtle things yeah. were in that movie. Um, I, I, we had to rewind and watch a couple times. There's a the part where Rooney, the, the, the principal, who's great, he's such a crazy dude in that show. There's Jeffrey a part Jones. Where, He's he he has to run to, to you know to to take care of this situation and he's he's running down the hall but every time he crosses in front of a, a classroom he starts walking calmly so he's running 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 walk 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 running 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 walk 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 and, and it was I forgot all about that and I was busting out mm. laughing because it's so hilarious because he's it's, the guy that always he's got to look proper like so every, yeah every time he crosses the window he doesn't want to make sure he's seen running so he's slowly walks as he crosses the window of the door and that's just one of a million funny things in that show uh, the, with the synth I mean all that stuff uh, and I think the reason that movie spoke to us we were seniors in high school when that movie came out yeah. and being that he was a senior in high school when this was going on. It, we were all going through the same exact thing that he was portraying in that movie. And so much I think about a movie is often what time in your life you watch stuff like this. And the fact that the character who, as you said, is talking to you in a way that you've never seen before, but he's going through the same struggles that his friend and his girlfriend are going through, thinking about college and, you know, uh, you know just getting through high school and what's my future and all that stuff. And dealing with parents, uh, it was. It, it had such a connection to what life was like at that time. And it's, I think it's different now. You know, you could show that. I think I could show it to my girls. And if maybe if they were seniors, they'd connect more to it. But they were seniors. They're seniors. They would be seniors now. But to be a senior in 87, 86, 87, watching Ferris as a senior high school student in 86, 87 was like perfect timing. And I'm with you. This movie was one of the we would watch it with our friends over and over and over and over and over again. And it was it just I think about that and I think of springtime, 
closing in on graduation in 87. I mean, yep. that movie was what was on. That was what we were watching. If we were hanging out, we'd pop it in and just start playing it over and over again. Well, and I have family that live in Chicago, and they are oh so proud that John Hughes is is from their town because John Hughes put Chicago into every one of his movies. He'd film his movies in Chicago. He was a he was Chicago lifeblood, true and true. And and what a great thing to be proud of. I I I think I wish John Hughes had grown up in Seattle and made Seattle the the uh, part of all his films because. There's so much Chicago in these movies, and I think about even the subtle thing where Rooney goes into the bar and he says to the bartender, there's a Bears game on, and he says, what's the score? The guy goes, nothing, nothing. He goes, oh, who's winning? (laughs) Clearly it wasn't. That guy looks at him like, you weren't even listening to me. He goes, the Bears. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it was a football team, so I was really not, you know, really yeah, not paying didn't attention. Didn't care less. Uh, uh, other little things about this movie too is at the very end, it made a song by Yellow, famous called "Oh Yeah." yeah. <laughs> but what's cool about "Oh Yeah" is it played during the credits, and I can't remember a, a time before that where when the credits were rolling, they they treated you to another part of the movie. It's the whole part where Rooney gets on the bus and has to dejectedly get on the bus and ride home when he's he's been torn up by dogs, dejected, he lost, he never got Ferris, and he walks all the way to the back and sits, you know, and there's a girl that says, here's, would you like a gummy bear? It's been in my pocket. It's really warm and soft. And he throws it away. And then the bus drives away at the end of the credits. So you don't really have to read the credits. You can just watch this little mini story but after that, which is something that still happens today, is a lot of people stay to the end of the credits because they're hoping for a little surprise. And at the end of Ferris Bueller, he walks up and looks at the camera and he says, you're still here. The movie's over. Go home. Go home. <laughs> Go. And he walks off. And, and it ended the same way it started for me. It was, it was mind-blowing how he yeah. spoke to us all yep. the way to the very end. So... I, yep. uh, there's no other movie that could be my number one. <laughs> yep, well, I agree. It, it was uh, the perfect movie, the perfect type of movie of that to come out at the time that we could couldn't have been at any more ideal time for us to appreciate that. So, surprisingly, that was the only movie you and I were in sync on. But yep. I, I'm glad we landed number one on that one. That Me for too. sure the most defining comedy of the '80s for us. Well, and actually, it's the perfect segue into my surprise, being that Ferris Bueller is our number one. You couldn't ask for a more perfect uh, timing. But my love of physical media. Uh, A place called La La Land Records came out with a limited run of the Ferris Bueller's Day Off soundtrack. And they only made 5,000 copies. I got one of them. I also bought one for my brother-in-law in Chicago. But the track list of this, most soundtracks, as you know, Norb, they'll have about 10 songs this actually has, well, count them, 35 tracks. Whoa. And it has little parts. It just has the, like, 11-second scenes where, like, he says, Bueller, Ferris Bueller. You remember the da 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 the little James Bond? Yeah, James it's Bond. It's got right. that on there. Does it have the, uh, when Cameron was in Egypt's land, let yes. my Cameron go. Yep. <laughs> Awesome! The, wow, the only thing to, not on the soundtrack is the me. is the Beatles song because they oh, couldn't twist and license shout. that. Couldn't, they couldn't license but, that one. Yeah, yeah. But they have the the band version of it because remember the band mm, played it. Yeah, too. they're playing along with it. So, yeah. But 
Also, what's cool about these physical media copies is inside there's a jacket insert, and it actually has uh, a very well-written tribute to John Hughes and about the way he made movies. And I actually wanted to read you, I, I read it earlier, and I wanted to read you just a little paragraph about it. And it, it, it's a lot about how John Hughes really cared about music in his movies. And he mm -hmm. really listened to a lot of music. It was very important to him to continue to be in touch with teens by the music he picked. So the music supervisor in the movie, his name was Tarquin Gosh. But this little expert, it says, Hughes and Gosh would pull coffee-powered all-nighters listening to boxes full of cassette tapes and LPs looking for just the right match. The Hollywood paradigm was, if you have a soundtrack album, go after the big names. Release the single up front to sell the movie, and if the soundtrack sold, that was a bonus. John's attitude was completely different. He loved the music. He was listening to the music. The music inspired the films in many ways. And his paradigm was that his core audience, the boys and girls in America who would like his teen films, were ahead of the curve. They were ahead of radio and ahead of television. What they wanted was new bands. They didn't want famous names. It was a marriage made in heaven, because that had been my job for the last 10 years, to know the bands that were coming up and to spot the good ones. Gosh would try out the occasional American band for Hughes, but the Brits almost always won out, as did many of the bands in Gotch's Rolodex. Hmm. Just a, a real way to, to just summarize how much John Hughes cared about music. And the music in his movies was really memorable, and it was usually 80s stuff you'd never heard, but it was cool. Yeah, right. Like, like that song at the beginning. Um, the other little expert I wanted to read was just something the editor talked to uh, about working with John. Uh, he basically said, uh, uh, they talked about when they started to edit the movie. When Hughes joined the editor in L.A. for post-production, the editor said, we were set up in a little building on the Paramount lot that was entirely for us. It had been converted from vaults for nitrate film, and there were all these pipes in the ceiling. I guess it was like an elaborate sprinkler system ready to go at any second in case the nitrate caught on fire. They brought in an old beat-up couch, and John would lie on it. Working with him felt like going over to somebody's house and going down to their basement rec room and hanging out all day. He was a terrific raconteur, and he would engage in storytelling based on what happened that weekend or whatever. And he would start to get on a roll. And he was the funniest person I've ever known. If he had been in a nightclub, I would have paid money to see him perform. Every once in a while, I had tears rolling down my face and choking with laughter from John Hughes' jokes. I would try to sneak turning on a tape recorder, but he'd see me and say, No, 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 can't do that. He was just fabulous. So I, a, a little bit from, from all the liner notes in the CD, but to me, it's, it's a way to just say... John, thank you for making such great films to help me through my childhood and make me laugh. I, I have never known anyone like you since who could do movies like you did. I don't know what you think, but... We, uh, you, we could almost do an entire show about John Hughes movies. We could. Because we've only scratched the surface. There's a whole bunch more that you know, didn't make our list that are still really memorable movies that you probably might have forgotten about. Go, oh, yeah, I remember that one. Um, Probably deserving of its own section to talk about it. But yeah, uh, it, for me, it was the same thing, too. His movies, you know, I think him and, and John Landis, probably those two directors, 
um, in the comedy world, probably had, you know, and then Zay, uh, uh, Zucker, Abram Zucker, those three probably all had some, you know, hand on watch, you know, learning about comedy growing up in the 80s. But definitely John Hughes, he just had that something about getting to the the, the soul of, you know, especially with, with us as kids. Yeah. Just something that connected with growing up. And he did a lot of coming of age stories and, you know, in, in a lot of his films. And yeah, it's uh, maybe it's just because we're adults now, so we don't connect to what, anything that's coming out now. But there was definitely a time where that was a unique '80s thing that I don't know if it'll ever be replicated again. I know. I do have one more little surprise. This is really wow, for our, our friend. This is really surprises. for our, our friend Brendan, uh, who is a Ghostbuster true and true, but. Being such a lover of music, and one thing I really liked from the 80s, they did a lot of remixes. And I don't know why more people don't search out remixes. I think they're the coolest things ever because they take a song we know and you get to hear extra bits of it, and it's just longer. And I love how they'll take uh, more instrumental parts where you can really just, with your ears, study the synth sounds and the beats and soak it in in a new way, in a refreshing way. So... I have collected a lot of 80s remixes over the years, but and one I'm very proud to have found is a special remix of Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters song. It's actually called Searching for the Spirit, but Brandon, I wonder if you've ever heard of this one. On the back, you can see it's got a cool picture of Ray Parker Jr. with the Ghostbusters dancing. Definitely, it looks like a still photo, so this, this does not actually exist in the music video. But... The Searching for the Spirit mix is, I don't know if you remember in the movie, but there's a part where they're dreaming and you hear this kind of uh, harp, crescendo xylophone harp sound. and In the middle of the regular song. In the middle of the regular song. Yeah, well, the kind of haunting area. Okay. This has that Throughout in the it. whole song? Throughout the whole thing? No, but it's got that in the middle, just like in the movie. But okay. you never hear that anywhere. Hmm. So... And it also starts out with more beats of the song and there's extra little kind of ghost sounds and and you know there's other stuff sprinkled in and what i think is cool about it is this was made back then it's not like something someone did today but it's one of the records i'm very proud to own in my collection and i thought it was fitting to share just with my ghostbusters hmm. being number two i'll have to hear that sometime because i don't think i've heard it I know most people, when I ask them if they want to listen to a remix, their eyes gloss over and they're like, oh, that's that's like a long version, isn't it? Oh, uh, I'm some busy. Remixes, some remixes I'm are busy. more creative than others. Some are just the same song, just it seemed like edited to last forever. And then some, they do something completely different with it. Uh, I don't know where that one lands, but you know, I'm curious. On our next guy's trip or something, you have to pop that in so I can check that out. Remixes were actually but, created at the time to play in dance clubs. Oh yeah, That's I remember. Uh, I that my again that time period. I would say specifically '87, which was that same year that that uh, um, Ferris Bueller came out. It was also the first year I went to my first club and experienced what you know dance music in a club was like. And I remember hearing all these cool techno songs. I don't think it was called techno then, but just dance songs that were remix of other songs that were coming out. And I remember that was that was uh, that was a, a pretty wild experience. I hadn't really heard remixes till I'd been in a club like that. And so, yeah, yeah there's some that are very cool. But they, they sometimes remix it in the clubs. They're literally like blending one song to the next. It's like, whoa, that was cool. They blended Debbie Gibson with <laughs> Silent Morning. That was awesome. <laughs> but That was hot at the time. But, 
All right. Oh, good stuff. Oh, I, I can't do one line from Ferris. Um, you speak English? What country do you think this is? Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm a professional. <laughs> professional what? Great stuff. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that's it. Those were the, our top five 80s comedies. Um, I hope you guys... Uh, enjoyed our show, and uh, this has been a long one. I don't know how long it is, but I hope you enjoyed every step of the way with it. I am Norb. And I am Mike. And we are called The Watchmen. The Men Who Watch. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for watching The Watchmen. Please click on here to watch other episodes, and be sure to hit that like button too. And please subscribe and hit that notification bell. That way you'll always be alerted to any future episodes. It really helps us out, and we appreciate it. We'll see you next time, and remember, we'll be watching.